You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. One of the questions I often get asked uh, when I introduce myself and talk about our church is why Hill City? Why did we decide to uh, call the church Hill City? Uh, If you've lived in Idaho for any amount of time, you might be aware there is a small town called Hill City, Idaho. Uh, Off of Route 20, it's 14 miles south of Fairfield, Idaho. Uh, The population in 2012 was 26 people. In 1911, the Oregon Short Line Railroad opened there, and it was a major exporter of sheep. And at one point in time, it was actually the largest exporter of sheep of anywhere in the entire world. And I tell you all of that to say that has nothing to do with the reason why we called our church Hill City Church. I I was not even aware that there was a Hill City, Idaho, until I went to file our 501c3 and I ended up, you know, there was issues with like, okay, that's why our website is Hill City, Boise, not Hill City, Idaho. Uh, you get the idea. Uh, our, the name of our church comes from Matthew chapter 5, 14, which is one of the passages we're going to. You can open to Matthew chapter 5 uh, in your Bibles. That's where we will be beginning today in the Sermon on the Mount. And some people talk about how they have a life verse. Have you heard of this? where it's like, this is, this is like my verse. This is the verse that has been so monumental in my own life. Matthew 5.14 is our Hill City life verse. I've preached on it a number of times before, and you better believe I'm gonna preach on it uh, a lot more. It's, it's so central to who we are and our identity. It, it, this idea of being a city set on a hill, which is where our name comes from, uh, to be a hill city, It played its way into our our strategy for making disciples, our ministry philosophy, our vision, our mission, our values, even our logo. I want to show you our logo. Some of you might recognize we have our logo here on the screen. That's uh, the the logo that you see on bumper stickers, T-shirts. What you may not know is it's more than just kind of like a cool-looking logo. If you look at the bottom part of it, it's actually meant to be, if we uh, look at the red hills right there. You can go to the next slide. It's supposed, that's supposed to be the hills, okay? Right? So you're like, oh, okay, there's a little, you can, see, you can kind of tell like two mountains next to each other. Uh, in some of our earlier logos, if you look, there's a, a white dot on top instead of it. The trend right now is to do the logo all black and white, you know, anyways. Uh, we used to, a, a lot of our, our early media, we had kind of like the hills one color and a, a white dot on top. The, the dot on top is supposed to symbolize the city on the hill, or the light that's on the hill, shining into the rest of the world. And something cool about this, you may not even notice, is in the negative space in between all four of those shapes, there's a cross. Ah, it all makes sense. There's a cross in the middle. Okay. Um, And that's to say that the gospel is meant to be central to every single thing that we do as a church. And if you, we, we didn't find that. We didn't find that logo online. We, you know, I worked with a designer who was at our church, and no joke, dozens, dozens of mock-ups to get to that, right? So if you think, uh, there's, so, so there's intentionality between, uh, behind this idea of we want to be a city set on a hill. We want to prominently be shining God's light into the world. 
And the reason for that is because that's what Jesus tells us we're supposed to be. It's not just a nice idea or a good vision that I came up with or our elders came up with. I believe this is one of the central metaphors for what God expects his people, his church, to be. So we're gonna go ahead and jump in. Matthew chapter five, we'll be beginning in verse 13. There's three central metaphors here. Uh, We see the first one in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I promise this is an encouraging verse from Jesus. (laughs) Salt is not a very common metaphor in scripture. It actually, uh, the Greek word halas, which is salt, only shows up in four Bible verses. Three of those Bible verses are a repeat of the same teaching where Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. One of them is in uh, Paul's writings where he tells us that our speech is meant to be seasoned with salt, right? And that's it. That's all we have in the New Testament for salt. So it's not necessarily a common metaphor that we understand, but if you look at the ancient world, salt meant four different things if you're taking notes. The first one is salt is preservative, Preservative. Did you realize that the first electric refrigerator was invented around 100 years ago? That's insane to me when I think about that. In the early 1900s, when electric refrigeration was invented, and before that, for most of human history, if you wanted to eat meat the next day, what did you do with it? You rubbed it in salt. You cured it, and salt was a preservative. What this teaches us is that we are meant to, as followers of Jesus, influence culture in such a way that we prevent moral decay. Think about that, that, that idea of like a chunk of meat. You know it's too much for your whole family to eat in one sitting, and so you wanna uh, cover some of it with salt to prevent the meat from going bad, corruption, decay. And when you look at a culture or a society, Christians should have this kind of influence, moral influence on a society where we have such a positive influence, it actually helps bring the moral temperature of a city up a few degrees. And I know, there, you, know you name the issue, abortion is uh, one of those issues that's in the news right now, but it, it cycles through. And there's certain social issues, moral and ethical issues that Christians often find themselves at odds with a culture where we believe that all humans have inherent uh, value and worth as created in the image of God. And we, we find ourselves against the grain of a culture because as the salt of the earth, we're meant to be helping preserve God's goodness in a culture at any specific moment, any specific time. And yet, what I find sometimes is Christians not being the salt of the earth, being influenced by the culture, And I would just ask you this question. Do you stand out at all? In your worldview, do you stand out from all of your non-Christian friends or neighbors or coworkers? Do you have different opinions on what righteousness is or what evil or what corruption is? And if we're gonna be the salt of the earth that Jesus is calling us to be, we have to influence culture more than we are being influenced by culture. That's the first thing that salt is. Salt is a preservative. Salt is also a fertilizer. It's a fertilizer. Uh, You could take salt and you could mix it in. Get your your hands dirty in the soil and mix it in, and it actually helps promote 
growth. Uh, some of the oldest family videos that we have, uh, I was born in Australia, my mom is Australian, and uh, some of the earliest home videos is actually Christmas time in Australia, which the seasons are opposite, so it's summer over there, so there's like lots of bugs during Christmas time. And so uh, if you got a real Christmas tree, something that was in the family video is my parents sprinkled salt in a ring around the tree so that the slugs and the pests didn't crawl up and eat and destroy the tree, right? And salt has a similar effect if you mix it in with the soil. It actually will prevent some of those nasty pests from eating your strawberry garden or your, you know, whatever you're trying to grow this summer. And so this is the idea that Christians are not only meant to preserve a culture in a way, raise the, the moral or the ethical temperature of a society or a culture, but we're actually meant to draw people closer to Jesus. We're meant to uh, not just prevent decay, but promote growth. Promote growth and fruit and disciple people in the way of Jesus. That's one of the dominant metaphors we talk about. When we talk about a disciple, maybe you're familiar with those five plant stages, right? All the way from a seed to a fruit-bearing plant is all of us in our journey with Christ. We want to move towards bearing fruit. But in order to do that, we have to promote growth. And I would just ask you this question. Are you making a disciple? Are you helping anyone else grow in their faith, whether it's your own children, whether it's discipling a, 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 a kids or youth here in our church, whether it's your coworkers, you're drawing them to Christ, you're speaking gospel truth to them, whether it's your friends, your neighbors, are you praying for your neighbors? Are you reaching out? Are you promoting growth? Are you sowing seeds of the gospel in any way in your life? That's what it means to be the salt of the earth is we're promoting growth and we're seeing fruit. Salt is preservative, salt is fertilizer, salt is also payment in the ancient world. You realize that our uh, English word salary comes from the Latin salarium, which literally translated is salt money. So if you make a salary, you're making some salt money. It's not bringing home the bacon, especially if you're Jewish, it's bringing home the salt. <laughs> And uh, salt was incredibly valuable in the ancient world because it was very useful in many different ways as we're seeing right now. And so uh, in some ways, uh, you would almost, uh, you'd almost ask for it if it was an option. Don't, don't worry about giving me a coin. Give me a bag of salt. Put it in my hand, right? And so there, this is the idea that if we are the salt of the earth, we add value. We add value to people's lives. Would your neighbors miss you if you moved away because you were so valuable in your neighborhood? Would your coworkers miss you if you took another position at a, at a different place of work because you were just the best coworker? Would your friends miss you if you moved away because every conversation you have with that person, they leave feeling built up because your speech is actually sprinkled with salt, seasoned with salt, and it gives grace to people who hear. I often say that yes, people need the good news of the gospel, but it's actually our good works that open the door for the good news. Are you adding value, relational value, to the people in your life? That's what it means for salt to be payment. Salt is preservative, salt is fertilizer, salt is payment, and the fourth thing, if you're taking notes, is salt is seasoning. This is the most obvious, isn't it? Right? This is the, the primary way we still use salt. Please don't give me a paycheck of salt. 
right? It's not as, not as valuable as it used to be. But salt is seasoning, we know this. Uh, I think of salty foods. Think of your favorite salty food that it's, you, you crave it. And uh, you take one bite and you need another bite. It's Lay's potato chips for years. Their logo was bet you can't eat just one. Bet you can't eat just one. And it was almost like a challenge. Like, oh, I'll eat just one. And you have one. You're like, all right, you win, <laughs> marketing team from Lay's potato chips. And uh, for, for salt to be seasoning, it's this idea that Jesus is the living water. There is a hunger, a desire, a thirst in the soul of every single human being on planet Earth. Do you realize this? For God himself, for a relationship with God himself. And we have the opportunity not to fill that desire or fulfill that desire in people's lives, but to create a craving for that to show people through our lives what they're missing out on. Bet you can't eat just one. We have the opportunity to create a craving for Christ himself. In your relationships, are you creating a craving for Christ? Would someone look at your life and the way that you talk about your prayer life, the way that you talk about the comfort and the peace and the insight and the wisdom you gain from God's word, he actually speaks to me on a weekly basis. The way that you, the vibrancy in your own relationship with Jesus as you follow him, someone sees that. Not just that you're a generally nice person. And I kind of hear that all the time. Well, I hope that people would see that I'm a generally nice guy and they would glorify my father in heaven. That's not what Jesus says. It's, it's, it's way above that. It, it, it's being this, this incarnational presence in our neighborhoods, our workplace, at your school, in your friend group that people say, I want what that person's having. I want, I want there's something different and the, the sad, they have joy in suffering. They have peace in turmoil. What is it about that person? They've got the living water and I crave it, right? That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. We're creating a craving for Christ. Are you creating a thirst for the living water? Here's the thing about salt. Salt only works through contact. It only works if it touches the thing that it's influencing. So think about all four of those metaphors. The salt doesn't do any good for the meat unless it's rubbed all on it. The salt doesn't help the soil unless it's mixed into it. The salary, the salt salary doesn't do any good unless it's in the palm of my hand. The salt doesn't do any good as a seasoning if you left it in the cupboard. Maybe you've done that. You've cooked a whole dish. You're like, what did I forget? What did I forget? The salt. Right? And, and I think for so, mu so, for, for so much of us, the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us through this is we have to have an incarnational presence in the world. And, and too often, the darker that culture gets, the more that I see so many well-intentioned Christians retreating from that darkness instead of being the salt of the earth, instead of being present in your neighborhood, in your place of work. But there's a warning that comes with this. Salt only works through contact, and so we have to be willing to engage in relationship with people who are lost. But at the same time, there's a warning. Do you see the warning? Jesus says, what good is it if salt loses its saltiness? Well, technically speaking, or you could say scientifically speaking, that's not possible. Uh, sodium chloride is an incredibly stable compound, and it, it's, if it's salt, it doesn't become unsalty. 
And yet, what Jesus is talking about was a very common tendency of salt in the ancient world. Not to, uh, not to become unsalty, but to become diluted. D.A. Carson says this, most salt in the ancient world derived from salt marshes or the like, rather than by evaporation of salt water, therefore contain many impurities. So when Jesus is talking about salt losing its saltiness, he's, he, what he's talking about is it's allowed the world to influence it. It's adopted worldly worldviews. It's taken the kingdom of light and it's allowed darkness to creep in. So here's the warning, and this is a very severe warning from Jesus. What good is the salt? Just throw it away at that point. And I don't think Jesus is talking as much about losing your salvation here as he is talking about how useful are we as salt of the earth. The warning is this, don't conform to the pattern of the world. It's a quote from Paul in Romans 12. We're not to conform to the pattern of the world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And, uh, and it's a hard thing to get right. It's a tension that we live in, right? Where we wanna be present. We wanna be like Matthew the tax collector throwing a party for all of his tax collector buddies. We wanna be like Jesus who is known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners where he enters in. And Christians should be in all of those dark places in the world. But here's the warning. Don't conform in those places. Don't let the worldly influence take over. Begin to be your dominant worldview because the reality is we cannot influence the culture unless we offer a godly counterculture. What good are we? What, what good would it be? And let's say, like, let's say hypothetically our church was like 110% like awesome at this. We're every, like MasterCard, we are everywhere you want. We literally are, are there in proximity to people who need Christ, but then we never influence those places. We never speak gospel truth. We never live a different kingdom ethic. And in fact, we almost just adopt the ethic of our day or the worldview of our day. What good would we be? And I would just reiterate Jesus's words. We would be no good at all. What good is salt that isn't actually doing what it's supposed to do when it's rubbed on the meat? When it's mixed in with the world, we have to be present in the darkest places in the world, but we have to understand that our primary allegiance, our sole allegiance is to the kingdom of light. And that brings us to the next metaphor, the next two actually, as we continue in Matthew 5, 14. We're not just the salt of the earth. He says, you are the light of the world and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The second metaphor is the light of the world. The Greek word phos, where we get photo from, is much more common than uh, the word salt in the New Testament. It's used about 60 times. And, uh, and so this might be a more familiar metaphor, but, but it's still equally as important for us to understand what it means for you to be the light of the world. Do you realize how massive that is when Jesus says that to you? We know Jesus is the light of the world, but here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are. Light is righteousness. It's one of the dominant uh, things that light symbolizes. It's righteousness. 
It means that we do good. And, and the word for good here is a unique word, uh, the word kalos. It carries this idea of not just morally or ethically good, but beautiful or attractive. That the lives that we live should be beautiful, praiseworthy to the world. And uh, we're gonna do righteousness. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, we're gonna hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then we're gonna do it. We're gonna shine it. We're gonna live our lives in an evident way. Again, this is not just being generally nice or generally good. There's lots of generally nice people in the world. But how, how generous are we? How sacrificial are we with our time? Do we serve? Do we pray for? Do we show up in uh, the moments where people are hurting in deep ways in their lives? We've gotta live the kind of righteousness that Jesus lived himself, where we lay down our lives for our friends. And we do good in those ways. Now, what's interesting here is you have a tension. I won't say a contradiction because uh, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, do good works so that people see those things and they give glory to God. Literally in the same sermon, we'll, we'll get here later on in the summer in Matthew chapter 6, he says, do not do, practice your righteousness in order to be seen. Do you know, have you seen that, Right? It's not a contradiction, it's just a tension that we live in, right? And in Matthew chapter six, we won't spend too much time on this, but we need to address this because I think it's very important. Because some people have almost used that as an excuse to keep their, their light hidden under the basket that Jesus is saying strictly, do not do that, right? Well, I don't wanna practice my righteousness in order to be seen. Okay, well, let's, what is Jesus talking about in Matthew six? He's talking about praying, giving, and fasting and drawing attention to yourself so that you receive your reward in full, and your reward in full is the praise of men. That's what he's talking about. Good job. You got your likes on Instagram. You got your, you know. Essentially, what he's saying is, is don't practice righteousness with a selfie stick. Don't try to draw attention to yourself. And, and really, the difference between these two teachings is who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? If you get the glory, you're actually detracting from the glory that that person should be giving to who? To God. And so he's not saying that everything we do good, everything that we do that is righteous needs to be in secret. He says, beware of drawing that righteousness, that glory to yourself. He actually says here in Matthew 5, we need to be shining righteousness in the world, but when we do, we're not drawing the applause for ourselves. We're actually directing that glory. We're actually directing that to our Father in heaven. So that's what, he, that's what he's, the teaching is. Uh, so you don't have to always be a secret Santa when you're generous. It's okay that someone finds out that you serve them, that you love them. You don't have to mow your neighbor's lawn at 3 a.m. In fact, don't do that. They probably won't like that. But you don't have to like, you know, mow it and then get out of there like with a ski mask on, like, you know. It's okay. And Jesus actually commands us to let your righteousness let that light shine before people because good works open the door for the good news. That's the first thing that light means. Light is righteousness. Light is also truth. Truth. We talk about a light bulb. You know, I had a light bulb moment. It's, you know, you understand something. Or we talk about someone who's very wise and, and knowledgeable being illuminated, right? So this is an ancient metaphor for light. So light is righteousness. Light is truth. This means that Christians believe reality. We believe reality. Uh, we live our lives in touch with the truth. And I say truth with a capital T, Jesus being the way, the truth, 
and the life. This means we accept the Bible as God's authoritative word. And too often what we've seen is these cultural mottos. If it feels good, do it. If it feels true, believe it. Have you seen that? Have you experienced that? It's, called, it's, a, it's a philosophy called relativism. It's this, you know, a more popular way to uh, describe it is you do you. If your truth feels good to you, then just live it. That's fine, right? I don't wanna step on anyone's toes. And as Christians, if we are going to be the light of the world, we must reject relativism and we must set ourselves under the authority of Christ as the living word and the Bible as the written word of God. And as we do that, that's going to ruffle some feathers. That's going to change your worldview being shaped by Jesus, the gospel, his teachings, the new covenant we have written, shaped by the Bible. That's going to change your worldview necessarily. We cannot encounter the authority of Jesus' teachings and think like the rest of the world. We will, by definition, as Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It matters what we believe. The, good theology, good sound doctrine, it matters. And, and we get there by setting ourselves under the authority of Scripture. All this to say, you need to read your Bible. You do. I read, uh, I read just yesterday about a survey of over 40,000 Christians. That's not a small sample size over 40,000 Christians, and they, they were specifically trying to find what is the difference that reading the Bible uh, makes in someone's life. And here's what they found. They found that for people who read the Bible three days a week or less, that the Bible had a negligible difference on their everyday life. It was like, if they weren't reading three days a week, it was like, might as well just read one day. Like, it didn't, it didn't make a huge difference. But there was a tipping point at four days a week. Everyone hold up the number four. I wanna challenge you to read your Bible at least four days a week, okay? 40,000 people, this is a study, that it made like a 238% increase in that person's ability to share the gospel when they read their Bible at least four days a week. What's four days a week? Most of the time. If someone says, how are you doing with reading your Bible? I'm reading it most of the time. I'm reading it most of the time. Every day would be great. Psalm one, I, you know, here's the standard. Blessed is the man or woman who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Maybe like 14, days, 14 times a week would be ideal, okay? In the morning, in the night, every single day, that's ideal. If that's you, then that's awesome. But I would challenge you four days a week. Shoot for it this week. If you don't know what you're reading in the Bible, read the Gospel of Matthew. Start right there. First book of the New Testament. We're gonna be preaching through Matthew this whole summer. Just pick a few verses or a chapter and allow God's word to shape your worldview. If we're not setting ourselves under the authority of scripture and spending time in God's word, we don't stand a chance against the spiritual formation machine of social media. Who are we kidding? If we're gonna spend five hours a day scrolling mindlessly on social media and not even spend five minutes a day in scripture, we don't stand a chance at being the light of the world. I will tell you that right now. And so we need to get serious. We need to put limits on our entertainment, limits on our distraction, and we need to put, we need to put structures in place so we know what we're reading, when we're reading it, meditate on the law of the Lord, and watch as the light begins to shine once again in the dark cultural moment that we live in. Read your Bible. The third thing that light means is light is life. 
Light is life. It's easy uh, to understand this one. Imagine if the sun went out. Life as we know it on Earth would cease to exist, right? That's where you get warmth. It's where plants get the chlorophyll and whatever, you know. We need light in order for there to be physical life. But the life that light often represents is uh, the kind of life described in the New Testament as zoe life, which is this eternal kind of life. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 4, John writes, In him, speaking of Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. That G- this is, he's, John begins his gospel making case that Jesus is the, the word incarnate, word with a capital W, God's word, his message of love to mankind, and he's the light of the world, which brings us out of darkness. And so for the light, for Jesus to call us the light of the world, that means we've experienced that. We've been brought out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. We've experienced salvation. We've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And that's really ultimately the gospel message. If you're here today and you you try to shine light into the world, but you've never first encountered Jesus as the light of men, then it's gonna be a failing venture. We can't just flex your spiritual muscles and say, I'm gonna try to light up this city. I'm gonna try to shine righteousness. And you're going just on your own source of righteousness without first being saved by God's grace, being made new and encountering the risen savior. So this is where it begins. We've got to experience salvation. The gospel is that Jesus is the light of the world first. And and, and we are a lot less like a, a candle or a lamp as much as the moon is a light to the sun, right? So the sun is the source, but the moon just reflects that. And that's how we are the light of the world, is we reflect the light that Jesus has done in our own lives. Jesus is the son of God. He died for you on the cross. He rose again. And today can be the day that you say yes to him. He can bring you out of the kingdom of darkness and into God's marvelous light. And I would encourage you today to pray and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then to declare that through baptism. Uh, we have uh, on our website, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. There's a place to sign up. We've just seen, we can't keep up with them, the number of people getting baptized around here. Uh, had the opportunity to baptize Paula yesterday afternoon in the Boise River. It was cold. And... Uh, the earliest river baptism I think I've ever done in the year, but this is what Paula said about her decision to get baptized. I put my faith in Jesus because his ways are better than mine. After spending most of my life running away from him and towards all the wrong things, I found myself feeling empty, lost, and broken beyond repair. But God didn't wait for me to clean myself up before he saved me. I know now that because of who he is and what he has done, I can trust him to lead my life. And maybe you're here today. Yeah, we could celebrate that once again. Maybe you're here today and you are acutely aware that your life is not light. You've, you've sinned. You've, you've rebelled against God. You, you haven't lived in line with uh, the mind of Christ or a biblical worldview. You've You've redefined scripture, or you've redefined ethics or morals, and maybe you resonate with that line. I ran towards all the wrong things, and I was broken beyond repair. And you feel like that. 
and you ask the question, could God save me? I wanna tell you, if Jesus Christ can rise from the grave three days later, then he can raise you up into a new life in him. Give your life to Christ. Turn towards him. It's not a work that we do, although this passage is about living good works, right? It's about living out that righteousness, but ultimately the most important thing that you could, decision that you could make today is to allow Jesus to transform you and to raise you up into a new life in him. And I would encourage you to do that through baptism. Here's the thing about light. Light only works when it shines. Salt only works through contact. Light only works when it shines. It's what Jesus is saying. What, I mean, he has this picture of you know, you invite someone into your house. In the ancient world, it wasn't like you flipped on a light switch. You lit a lamp. Now imagine you have one lamp in your whole house, and you, you know, you're using the oil, and you're doing that, and you, you light it, and you're like, just a moment, and you put a basket over top. It's absurd, isn't it? It's, it's just as absurd as salt that isn't actually very salty. It's diluted. It's corrupted. And so what do we do if maybe you are a follower of Jesus, you've, you've encountered the light of the world, you've encountered the resurrected Savior, but you look at your life and you're like, it's just not very light. I haven't been living in line with the truth, reality. I haven't been doing good. I haven't been influencing. And, and, and I believe salvation is something, yes, that we experience at one point in time, but we continue to experience as God sends the Holy Spirit in our lives to sanctify us by the truth, his word is truth. I would encourage you, go back to the source. Go back to the light of the world. Spend time at the feet of our Savior. If we wanna shine in the darkness, we have to stay in the light. We've gotta stay in the light. And there's a warning here. The warning here, similarly to the warning about salt, is don't hide your identity in Christ. When we're in those dark places in this world, it's gonna be so tempting, like Peter did, right? When he was in the courtyard and Jesus was arrested and uh, on trial, and you remember the little servant girl, aren't you, one of, aren't you one of the disciples? It's so tempting in those moments because we have a fear of resistance, a fear of rejection, especially if you have a tendency to be a people pleaser. We have a fear that someone's not going to like us because we identify with Christ. Don't hide your identity in Christ. There's a reason why this teaching immediately follows the, the eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's meant to encourage us and it's also meant to inform us we should expect pushback. A church that is doing this is going to, to have pushback from the culture. Uh, a person that is doing this is going to have pushback from your friends, your, your neighbors, your coworkers. Now we're gonna try to shine that light and be as loving and have good works and it opens the door, but this isn't a formula that's always going to work. There will be resistance, spiritual resistance even at times. Dietrich Bonhoeffer encourages the church today in, in this uh, in this line from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Remember, he gave his life during World War II, fighting against Nazi Germany. He says this, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. What good is salt if it's lost its saltiness? What good is light if you cover it 
with a basket. Here's two practices for us. The first one is to redeem the ordinary. Redeem the ordinary. I know sometimes when we think about righteousness and shining, we, we think about, man, does, is this starting an orphanage or being a missionary or you know, doing something like one of these grand gestures for the kingdom of heaven? And certainly God calls people to big things. But he also calls you to shine light Monday morning. He also calls you to shine light when you're parenting your children. He calls you to shine light when you're driving in traffic. And I know traffic's getting worse every day. He calls you to shine your light in the grocery store checkout. He calls you to shine your light when you're mowing your yard. He calls you to shine your light in your everyday, ordinary life. And I would argue if we're not living out salt and light in those places, I'm not so sure we're gonna be ready to follow the call when God calls us to bigger things. Michael Wilkins says this, much of this, speaking of shining God's light, is accomplished in the ordinariness of life. The world to whom we are to go are people found in the everyday routines of life. They will see our transformed life in everyday activities. People are looking at you on social media. They're looking at you to see how you're handling the difficulties of our cultural moment. They're looking at you when you're not even sure that they notice you or it even matters. And this is why we need to redeem the ordinary, to submit every aspect of our lives to Christ. Or as Hill City Church, our vision statement is follow Jesus with everything. With everything, every day, every moment, every opportunity we have to shine God's light. And here's the beautiful thing about the third metaphor. So we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world, and we are a city set on a hill. Is when you have a bunch of people, this isn't just an individual teaching, this isn't this American hyper-individualistic, just try your best to live this out by yourself. We are the church. We are a city set on a hill. And when a ton of people, when a community of people, it doesn't have to be a ton, but a community of people, a faithful remnant comes together, we shine brighter together. We will shine brighter together. That's, that's the, the point about a city. In the ancient world, often cities were built on hills. Uh, it made a great place to defend yourself if your city was ever under siege or under attack. Uh, and often, some of the cities uh, like Jerusalem and, and in that part of the world were built, one of the main building materials was limestone which is highly reflective. And so imagine not just a person lighting a light inside of their house, but imagine everyone lighting their lights for the night. And you're a traveler, there's a traveler out there, and maybe they're lost, and they don't know which way to go. And the sun's going down, and they're like, oh no, I'm never going to be able to reach refuge or safety or my destination. And then actually, the darker that the day gets, the better they can see this city shining in a distance. And it draws that lost person to it. And, and this is why I love, in, in the early 2000s, there was kind of this debate in church leadership. You know, do churches wanna be attractional? You know, do, run services really well, run events really well, and draw people? Or do they wanna be missional? You know, kind of throw the services out the window, but go into uh, the cities and, and, and kind of be salt individually and personally, not necessarily corporately together. And I always felt like that was kind of a silly debate, especially when you read Jesus' teachings here, because I think it's both. 
And that's really at the heart of our name, Hill City Church, is when, when there's a community of people who are living this way, you better believe it's going to draw people in. It's going to be so countercultural. We're gonna be people who embody the fruit of the spirit that there's something different. There's something different about those men's breakfasts. There's something different about those women's events. There's something different about that youth ministry and people are drawn to it. But then we all, we all know the church was never meant to stay within the walls of a building or from 9.15 to 10.30 on a Sunday morning. The church is on the move, the church is on mission and we shine God's light into the community. That's what it means to be a city set on a hill. I wanna show you a picture from Christmas Eve this past year. One of my favorite things about Christmas Eve is the candles. Does anyone else love the candles? I know it's a hassle with the wax and we always say don't spill it and it never works out that way. But this was this past Christmas Eve and it was so, it's always so powerful when you know one individual candle, if you were to shut off all the lights, one candle doesn't like light up this whole room but a few hundred do. And I was, I was there, obviously, on Christmas Eve, and it wasn't even just like the light of the room. The city set on a hill, that we are the salt of the earth together. We are the light of the world together, and we are shining that as the community of God together. We have a tangible opportunity to respond the first week of June. It's an event we do every summer called Impact Week. Part of uh, our mission statement is we wanna become and make disciples who impact the world. And Impact Week is uh, essentially just a week that we try to get uh, group leaders and even individuals who aren't a part of groups to plan service projects to serve the city and impact the world. And uh, we already have seven projects listed uh, on there. You could actually, right now if you wanted, pull out your church center app. You could go on there and you could sign up. We would encourage everyone in our church to sign up for a service project. Uh, if there's not a service project on there listed right now that appeals to you, two things. We're gonna be adding more service projects every day as they come in and as they get planned. So you can always check back, you know, middle of the week, you can check back next week. Or number two, plan your own project, come on. No, if you're like, ah, I don't, none of those really, you know, I wanna serve in this way, it's like, great, plan a service project and email connect at hillcityboise.org and lead in that way. Uh, and we do Impact Week every year, not so that we can feel good about ourselves and be like, <laughs> receive the applause from men. We don't, we don't do it every single year to be like, we served that one time all, you know, all year. We do it to continue to foster a culture of service to continue to foster a culture of being the salt of the earth, to going into places that we don't usually go, uh, to, to being the light of the world, and ultimately to be the city set on a hill. So I would encourage you, sign up for that. If you're a life group leader or, or someone who's planning a project, get your details in. If you were to get your project in like the day before Impact Week, a lot of people probably won't sign up for it. So get those details in soon. Uh, you can sign up for one of the seven different service products that list, that's listed there, but you can find all of that information at hillcityboise.org slash events. And I'm praying that God would do powerful things at Impact Week. So who are we? We are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And we are a city set on a hill. And when we live the identity that Jesus calls us to live, people will notice and they will glorify our Father in heaven. And that is why we are called Hill City Church. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your goodness, your mercy in our lives. Thank you for the righteousness you've given us. You've clothed us with Christ. God, you've transformed us. And if there's any transformation, any repentance that we need, steps of repentance and confession that we need to take right here today by your Holy Spirit, convict us, move us to be the people of God that you've called us to be so that we are a different kind of community, a countercultural kind of community. And God, would we live in our city, in our neighborhoods, God, would you use us to influence this culture and would we see renewal and revival in the days ahead? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.